Good afternoon. Welcome into Great Quarter Guys, Episode 8. This is Andrew Cox filling in as a host for Seth Holm. Today I have with me, as usual, Kevin Hill, and I have Mr. Mike Bowden-Distel, an intermodal guru. How are we doing, fellas? Great. We're doing great, yeah. yeah. Yeah, good. It's nice here. and warm in this booth after after the over it always, the spraying room. Wow, I have to take my jacket off before coming in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to get used to it because it's freezing in our office. Oh man, it's like set at sixty all the time. I, I know. Uh, well, we have a a jam packed show uh, for you guys. So we'll I'll start from the top and we'll run down what we're going to do. We're going to break down intermodal. I mean, excuse me. We're going to break down AutoZone and our normal uh, business segment breakdown. And then moving on, we've got. Uh, We've got the biggest trucking bankruptcies uh, since the 2000, since the 1980 deregulation, excuse me. And then we're going to talk about our normal DHL supply chain pricing power index. Uh, Mike is going to talk a little bit about his deep dive over the weekend into intermodal. Uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about Navistar and FedEx. They both reported this week and what that means for the industry. And then last, we'll do our normal long short segment. Uh, so we'll jump right into it, into AutoZone. Um, AutoZone is a, a best-in-class retailer in a, in, a, in a retail section that hasn't all been that much affected by, um, by e-commerce yet. Uh, founded in 1979, they now have over 6,000 stores in North America, the vast majority in the U.S. Uh, it's a massive company, $27 billion market cap. Trades roughly uh, currently at 17x uh, price to earnings. It's got really healthy cash flow at a billion and a half. Uh, one, one thing that is uh, that people talk about is that they, they currently trade at a discount compared to peers, compared to AutoZone. I mean, compared to, excuse me, compared to uh, Advanced okay. Auto Parts, Napa, and, uh, and O'Reilly. Thank you. O'Reilly trades at the highest. Uh, but they do have the industry-leading sales for store, sales per store and profit per store. Um, but they have been, they've been buying back aggressively over the past few years, 6% annually, uh, and they've beat on earnings four out of five quarters. Um, so I guess... We'll go ahead and start in with some of the trends in, in vehicle aging. Uh, right now, there's this, there's kind of a sweet spot for a lot of these auto companies. They want to get past the warranty of, of six years, uh, and they want it between it before it gets too old, where people just trade it in or get something different. Um, what do you guys think about the current trends in aging? Is it, trends in car uh, vehicle aging is it good for them? Yeah. Is it what six years right now? Yes. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's currently the kind of sweet spot is there six to eleven years. Yeah. And and what is it now? About nine. Yeah, it's about nine. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, from my pers- perspective, I think that's that's a good thing for them. Um, I, you know, I think it, that's the type of age when just a lot of repairs are needed, and um, you know, cars are lasting longer. And um, but but you know, the, the longer you know they're they're driven, the more repairs are, are needed. So I would say it, it's it's a good thing, you know, for them. Yeah, it's a very good thing. You know, you get into eight nine years, you're in what 160,000 miles. And things start going wrong. Sometimes not major things, but little things go wrong. I have a 15-year-old car, uh, and basically it only has about 120,000 miles on it. But uh, the older it gets, uh, just little things, right? right? The blinker goes out. So you got to replace the blinker or a belt goes out. And you have to replace the belt. And uh, so, you know, those repairs, uh, a lot of handyman, you know, shade tree mechanics, as they say, uh, can go to the, the auto parts store and uh, buy their parts and and go in change you know do that change their oil. Uh, so a lot of uh, really good uh, re- really good products for DIY, right? DIY. Right. DIY. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, my first question to you guys uh, is 
Uh, you know, like I just said, that uh, AutoZone trades at a discount to its peers. And the first question is, why do you think it currently trades at a discount to, the, to its peers? And do you ever think that the market will eventually price AutoZone uh, relative or close to it, closer to its peers? So I, I think, uh, I think the, from what I've read and what I've seen, it's the, the commercial business is, is much lower than the, their competitors. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're more retail, though they, they, they really they, they're outperform all their competitors in the, the retail uh, straight-to-consumer space. So from, from what I've seen, that, that is kind of one of the, the, the knocks for, for the undervaluation is their, their lack or, or their, their small uh, commercial business that they're, they're trying to grow right now. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, it's really, you know, there's a big part of it is that breakdown between the commercial business versus the DIY. You know, I just listened to their last conference call, and what struck me is that the DIY segment was growing a lot slower. It was growing only about 1% a year, whereas mm-hmm. the commercial, you know, it was sort of in the mid-single-digit range. So the smaller portion of uh, the larger portion of their business is, is growing less. And so that, that price earnings multiple is largely a function of how fast is, is that E going to grow? And, and that's how much you're going to, going to pay for the, for those earnings. So I think that's, that's part of it. But, um, you know, what was also striking is, you know, companies performing well and you've just seen a lot of appreciation in that multiple over the last year. It's been a tremendous performing stock uh, this year up about 47%. Yeah, and I guess we need to make note of, of why, uh, investors, price commercial business higher than they do uh, the DIY business. It's a much, it's, it's a recurring, uh, a recurring revenue. It's a lower margin, but it's a recurring revenue. Um, and it's, it has a much bigger TAM uh, as the DIY segment. If you're, and these are, again, these are the, uh, the body shops coming in and buying, uh, buying parts from AutoZone. Right. So uh, my second question is, is about electric vehicles. So this trend, while, while granted right now it's less than 1% of the cars on the road in the U.S. are electric, uh, there is a trend moving towards electric vehicles, especially with Tesla and, uh, and Ford making this massive announcement that they want to be all electric by uh, mid, mid-2020s. mid uh, How much do you think that the trend to EVs really hurts not only AutoZone but its peers uh, moving forward? I don't think people with EVs work on their own cars. I just don't a see point. a Tesla Model Y owner having an idea how to open the hood. I mean, maybe you can open the hood, but that's that's about it. Right. You know, with EVs are, are interesting because there's not a lot of moving parts, so you think right. that would be a negative thing. You know, the 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 battery is that one, you know, component that you think okay, that's really high value that if something goes wrong with that, that's a big ticket item. I don't know if you're going to be able to put in a generic battery or if that's something that's going to have to be proprietary from the OEM. I think a lot of that remains to be seen and it's 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 sort of hard to to know at this point because there's not a lot of old EVs, you know, out there, um, you know, like the Jalopnik article, people love their Teslas, but people love their new Teslas. There's not a lot of old Teslas. So we'll see, you know, how they age. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you saw that in the um, uh, the Mercedes. Uh, what, what's the parent company of Mercedes? Daimler. Uh, Daimler, Mercedes, uh, the, the, the huge layoffs, uh, both in Europe and in the U.S. And they're moved to electric vehicles. And, you know, the transmissions and engines, it's less labor-intensive to build. There's less moving parts. So, uh, to, so, so that kind of restructures and redesigns the, the, the engine, how you work on your car. As, as Mike said, uh, I don't see a lot of people who own EVs actually doing their own repairs, right? right? And I don't know if they could, right? I mean, could an actual mechanic figure out an EV. I, I think it's probably a, you know, you're Different going from, set. yes, yeah. certainly like a, a steam engine compared to 
to a, an oil engine. It's just a different dynamic. Right. Because, you know, EV, there's a couple angles there. It's like, yes, they have uh, fewer moving parts, but those parts are more expensive uh, to replace. And it's also that EVs are, you know, those batteries that you just spoke about, Mike, are really heavy. So they're, they're, they're rough on the, uh, on the suspension and other parts of the car. So there's, there's bits of the car that will need to be replaced more. Yeah. Yeah, you you um, definitely have to, to, to watch a few YouTube videos of, of people <laughs> uh, fixing an EV vehicle before you'd be able to, uh, to have any idea uh, about it. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll move on a little bit, and it's uh, this is this is a little bit of that uh, point I made earlier about these hardline retailers that haven't been displaced that much by uh, e-commerce currently. But Amazon did step into this market in 2017 uh, because of that recurring revenue that you can get from oil, uh, you know, from oil in a car and windshield fluid and, and the different things that they can buy. Do you think uh, that Amazon or even other pure play online retailers can take a significant uh, market share here in this industry? Why or why not? You know, I think for some of the more generic components, I think that's a real threat. I mean, th- you know, things like, you know, washer fluid or, you know, caps you put on the, the tires. I mean, just some, some of those more generic all makes things. I, I think, you know, you know, Amazon's going to take a, a bigger impact there. I mean, one, one of the, the trends I've noticed with retailers in the last, you know, few months is they've seemed to have gotten better with their technology, you know, presence. I mean, we've seen like, you know, tar- Target actually outperform Amazon this, this year, the shares have because mm-hmm. they, they've been growing their 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 online presence and their sort of same same door um you know same day you know uh, sales presence if you you know you you go online you buy something online then you go pick it up and it seems like AutoZone is is starting to to figure that out I think with autos specifically so many of the components are either very specific to the make and model that you have a lot of times they need to be ordered from the the OEM or um, they're just big and bulky and it's a fender and that doesn't necessarily you know work itself out well to having the Amazon business model of having all the products very close in a warehouse close to the consumer. Yeah, I agree with you, Mike. The, the, the very generic things, and I, I think really the, the the really niche things as well, right? Things that normally aren't in stock in every store, uh, whether it's AutoZone, O'Reilly's, or, or what, what what have you. Uh, certainly classic cars, things like that. Uh, you, you can have third-party resellers on Amazon who specialize that in, in that, and if it's uh, shippable, um, like a carburetor or something, then, then you'll see that. And I th- think you see that on eBay a little bit, too. Uh, though there's really specialty niche uh, products that, that that really aren't in the store, but your, your normal your, your normal normal products that are a little bit bulky and and certainly are are a little bit specialized, but you know your 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 mainstream type of you know Chevy Fords things like that. Uh, I, I think um, I, I think you you'll still see that the retailers uh, be able to. To, to, to thrive. And, and part of that is because sometimes you have to go in and get assistance yeah. and figure out what exactly right. I need and, and what the part is. And does this actually fit with, uh, you know, 2008 will go on in 2006. And a lot of the people who work in, in AutoZone O'Reilly's, uh, they, they're pretty good at, at, mm-hmm. at customer service and being able to, to, to guide customers. And, and you can always walk the part out to your car and make sure, right? If you yeah. order on Amazon, it's going to show up. Then you have to return it. So there's a, a little bit of friction there as well. So you can, you're basically willing to pay a premium for the knowledge that the people that the employees of, of AutoZone have. Yes. Yeah. You're willing to pay pay, pay, uh, pay a premium for that, and you're willing to pay the premium so you can you know sometimes just walk out and pop your hood mm-hmm. and see if it works or not. So you don't uh, you don't waste two or three days. Yeah. Uh, you know, wondering, hopefully, hopefully this happens. 
I think you both make uh, good points about the parts coverage. That was also uh, one of the reasons that I think uh, AutoZone trades at a discount to its peers, and that's not having uh, the the amount of SK, SKUs and the amount of products that O'Reilly has in a store, which is kind of leads into a nice uh, transition into the transportation and distribution angle of this company. Is that they've they've noticed that and they've tried to make a uh, you know they try to advance their distribution, and they've done this by creating hubs and mega hubs over the last couple of years. And basically, this means that a, a hub is a store that's quite a little bit bigger than a normal. Uh, AutoZone like store. Like an anchor store. Right, like an anchor store. And I think they had 170 of them uh, five years ago. They haven't really grown that, but what they have grown are these mega hubs, which are uh, three and four times bigger than a normal store. And they almost act as kind of mini distribution centers mm-hmm. uh, for AutoZone. And it allows them to, they've actually allowed them to increase their amount of deliveries uh, per week. I think O'Reilly delivers almost every weekday. Uh, and it, just two years ago, AutoZone was only delivering like once or, once or twice a week. They've increased it to about three uh, per week. So, uh, just you guys have any thoughts on on that game plan? Do you think that's uh, that is maybe a, a cheap way to get into the uh, better distribution and supply chain of their uh, of their parts? Um, what are you guys' thoughts? It, it's certainly better, and, and they have a, a huge fleet of light vehicles that, that make those deliveries and, and make commercial deliveries to to, uh, to the repair shops and and body shops. I don't know if they do home deliveries. I'm yeah, I, sure. I, I didn't see that. Um, they also have a, a fleet of about 300, 350 uh, Class 8 trucks, tractor trailers, that they, uh, that they they make deliveries to those those mega stores with and that they control a lot of their, their inbound uh, product coming in and also well, kind of their outbound to their stores and back inbound with vendor parts to, to other stores. So uh, as far as their, their, their transportation network is is advanced you know yeah i would add that um it really seems like they're going to have to make more of an investment in inventory i mean i think that's something that, that came across a little bit on their their, their uh, last analyst call and, and also just from my time covering rush enterprises which you know there's some overlap there in what they do on the aftermarket side for 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 heavy trucks but um you know to, to you're only going to buy a part if it's if it's in if it's in stock and so um you know, i think that's going to be a pretty big investment on, on Amazon's part it's just having the the right part so when someone comes in they they have that part that's needed yeah, so our last question on the topic is we, we talk a little bit about that mix between commercial and the, the DIY, the DIFM versus the DIY model, the do-it-for-me or the DIY uh, do-it-yourself model. Uh, at the end, like we mentioned earlier, they only have 22% uh, commercial exposure, whereas I think O'Reilly's leading the market at 58%. Uh, do you think that the DIY market is declining? Do you think less people are willing to go and try to get a part and fix it themselves uh, compared to years past? I don't know if it's declining. I, I think it'll always be popular. I, I think people, you know, there, there's a huge subset of certainly Americans who love working on the cars. I'm not one kind of, of them. Amer- kind of an American past. It, it, it is. Know. Yeah, I'm not one of them. Uh, my, my father is. Uh, he was always swapping out and, and trading Jeeps or, or, or what have you and always running down to the auto parts store. Um, you know, I, I think YouTube is actually a, a a big uh, bull case for DIY because in the old days you just tear everything apart. There's no instructions; you just tear everything apart and try to figure out how to put it back together. But uh, with with YouTube, uh, you know, whenever I do work on my car, I, I can stage everything. I, I can see exactly how you do that with the same make and model, and you can Google and YouTube until you find the right videos. And then you basically it's like paint by numbers almost. You kind of go through there. And uh, it makes working on your car, no matter what it is, much easier. So I'm very bullish on DIY. 
I'm, I'm actually not uh, as, as <laughs> bullish. And nice. uh, so, sort of the, the reason is, you know, cars are just getting so technologically advanced that it's really almost more like, in some cases, you know, fixing a computer than, you know, the, you know, grease monkey turning a wrench type of thing. So, um, you know, I, it's, there are so many just, you know, electronic parts these days that these are almost computers on wheels. And I, and I think more and more people are just want someone to, to sort of do it for them. I, you know, the, uh, one of the great things about the, 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 the electronics in a car, though, is now you can have a diagnostic, right? And you just plug it in and it'll tell you what's wrong instead of crawling under the hood and spending, you know, eight hours just trying to take in apart four different things that, that wasn't process, you know, it's basically a process of elimination, right? So you take, take apart four different things and you realize, oh, no, this isn't it. But with the diagnostic, you can easier, easily do it. But they are, you know, cars are, are harder to work on these days. And EVs would be, to me, impossible. I, I could never figure it out. I think I, the one thing about EVs is that uh, a model that Tesla has taken that I actually really like and that you don't come out with a, every year, come out with a little bit of a new model. You come out with one model and then you make it very... Uh, um, you make it a big part of it being the technology and the software, and you just update the software every once in a while. I think that that is a it's a good mark, it's a good uh, plan moving forward, and I think it, I think more people will follow. Oh, yeah, definitely. Will y'all have any uh, last thoughts on AutoZone before we move on? No, it's it's a, a very well run company, a great yeah, great sales. The management team has has been steady for a long time. The CEO has been with the company mm-hmm. since like mm-hmm. 1994 or something. And, and you know, going beyond AutoZone. I like the whole space. I like all three or four uh, of their stocks. I think they're very good defensive stocks yeah. uh, in, in hard times. I mean, they did really well during the Great Recession. Right. And I, I think any, I, I think even in a good economy, they, they'll do well. But in a bad economy, I think the, the their values will, will stick. Yeah, you do wonder if uh, if new car purchases are going to start to slow here. I mean, I, I noticed the National Dealers Association expecting a one percent um, decline next year for new vehicle sales, and 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 really it's because the the new uh, sticker prices you know keep in inflating oh, right. because of so many electronics in the cars, and consumers aren't necessarily cutting back the number of new cars yet, but what they're doing is extending out the the terms, the payment terms, instead mm-hmm. of you know sixty months at seventy two months, but at some t- point. Mm-hmm. You know, consumer gets sort of tapped out. They want to keep those monthly payments below 500. So I think at, at some point you are going to see a, a bigger contraction there with uh, new uh, vehicle sales. Yeah, the, the good, I guess the good thing, the help for them is that they're at like, a, you know, let's say call it a six or, or 10 year lag from new car sales. Like they don't really, you know, they're focused on new car sales, but they're more focused on how many cars are on the road yeah. and how many miles are those cars uh, are those cars driving. And even if you don't like working on your own car. Your, your neighbor down the street does or uh, your coworker does and you pay him to work on it at night and he's going down to the auto parts store to, to pick up parts to, to fix your car. So uh, as part of a, a maybe an underground economy, it's, it's a pretty sizable underground economy of or, or a gig or, or a hustle economy, right, of, of working on cars after, after hours. And I guess another risk that I just thought of that I don't see it as a risk, but I'd like to mm-hmm. hear you guys' opinion is uh, is the ride sharing. Uh, it's Uber and Lyft, and and the thought that in the future we won't have so many cars on the road, we'll have so many f- so less few cars, and we'll be sharing cars between each other. Uh, you know, do you think that poses a major risk to uh, AutoZone and O'Reilly and and these other companies? I I would say not just because the ride sharing cars. Put, get so many miles put on them right. that I think it's a little bit more a function of mileage than than age. Although you know age can play a role role too. But those those you know Uber cars get driven driven pretty hard. So I think those mm-hmm. need a lot of repairs too. Yeah, I, I agree with Mike's reasoning, and I I just don't think the ride sharing revolution uh, that'll put 
personal vehicles out or is anywhere close to, to getting here. So I, I think I'll just worry about it uh, the, the closer we get to that it. Is a, that's a good foreshadowing for our long, short segment, which we'll, we'll get to yeah. later in the show. But let's go ahead and move on. Uh, let's move on to the biggest trucking bankruptcies. Freight Waves has been all over. We actually broke the news about the Celadon bankruptcy uh, last, I guess it would be two Fridays ago. Uh, so we had the discussion. We, you know, there's a lot of people that are thinking that this was the largest trucking bankruptcy of all time, and it doesn't seem that it is. It seems that it's the largest public trucking bankruptcy of all time. But uh, back in deregulation in the 19 in 1980 with the Motor Carrier Act of 1980, there were many changes to the uh, to the industry. And I'll, I'll let Kevin take the take the helm here and, and run away with a bit of what changed in the market and and how it bankrupt so many companies in the 80s. Yeah. So what what you had and and I didn't quite really or maybe I just hadn't thought of it in, in a long time. But I, I watched The Irishman on on Netflix. It took me two or three sittings to make it through the three yeah, and a half three hours. And a half hours right? long. So it was, it was a good movie. It wasn't great. It wasn't Goodfellas or anything, but it was Jimmy Hoffa, Teamsters. And I did a little reading after that because uh, I, I didn't realize that, you know, say at that time, like mid-70s or early 70s, that almost 100% of over-the-road drivers were unionized, mm-hmm. right? And and certainly the, the, the tariff and the competition system with trucking companies where if a trucking company wanted to extend into another lane, they had to publish their rates, uh, and basically their competitors got 30 days to to, to match those or, or block them. But there's a lot of ways uh, in in both, um, but both both the rates and that the competition system, as well as wage and labor, right? Because it's, it's unionized, and uh, it was a, a very controlled, you know, uh, centrally controlled system, which deregulation took all of that away. Owner operators became the, the the new cowboys running around uh, with their their own trucks, uh, making money on their own. Uh, but it really depressed wages, depressed weight, depressed rates as well, and um, kind of a, a backdrop of uh, of that. But a lot of those, uh, a lot of the companies that really benefited from the system, the, the large uh, trucking companies, couldn't compete uh, because you know a lot of times they had unionized labor, and um, and you saw we have what. We have four or five, we have four or five very large bankruptcies that that happened in in the eighties up until uh, two thousand two, right? Directly, directly due to uh, labor, yeah, labor costs, right? From our right. Uh, from our research, the uh, the largest bankruptcy ever was Consolidated Freight Waves. They they lasted a bit further than most of their peers that uh, went through deregulation. Uh, but in two thousand two, they. They filed for bankruptcy, and they had over fifteen thousand employees that were uh, laid off. You know, pretty much on no notice. Uh, and when when Consolidated Freight Waves went down, they were uh, after they after they went down, the, there was only three of the top fifty trucking companies in nineteen eighty that were still remaining. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but three out of fifty. So that means almost every big trucking company in, from nineteen eighty uh, fell. Yeah, and two of those were um, Road and. And, uh, and it was basically road transportation. What eventually became YRC. YRC yellow and, and, and roadway. Roadway. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Mike. So uh, and two of those consolidated uh, YRC roadway, which is still maybe the, the last standing from the, the regulated period uh, motor carrier. And they are being crushed by by labor costs and, and unionized labor right now. Right, Mike. Yeah, and, and, and old equipment, and, and mm-hmm. but but yeah, I mean it's it's difficult for a unionized carrier to compete 
uh, against non-unionized carriers. I mean, we've mm-hmm. seen that sort of over and over again, particularly in the LTL industry, that um, you know there really aren't many unionized carriers left. It's 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 mm-hmm. YRC, and then it's Arkansas Best, and um, that's, right. that's it. Mike, you want to touch a bit about how the Staggers Act kind of uh, did did something similar for your neck of the woods for the rail industry? Yeah, it was probably the single biggest event in the history of the railroad industry. Um, you know, 1980, the railroad industry was uh, deregulated, and you know, then you know, b- before then, you had things like um, the um, bankruptcies as, as well in, in in the railroad industry, and it was a defragmented. Uh, um, you know, industry, and there were things like standing derailments. And it was really a situation where the rails, you know, couldn't compete with, um, you know, the, with the trucking industry. And so the Staggers Act did, you know, a number of things. One of which, which was it enabled the the market to to set the, the the rates, and so the the rails were able to 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 take you know take rates up. Um, you know, it was also enabled them to to get rid of lines that were not you know being used because the railroads about you know two thirds of their capex. Sometimes more than that is just to maintain the existing tracks. So they abandon tracks that really aren't worth the capital expenditure. Um, you know that's huge for their their, their returns on, on on capital, and you know it, it allowed them to just focus on the the areas where they they were most you know competitive with with truck. And so over the years there was lots of you know consolidation. I mean now it's a very concentrated industry. You really just have two you know class ones in each of the major major regions. And you know over time after you know period of of and actually rates you know for a while came came down as the rails would 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 show you because but you know the cost came down even more and and you know even. And so the rails were uh, destroyers of capital, really, for, for for many decades up until you know not 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 too not too long ago. And um, you know lately they've been you know tremendous stocks uh, in the last fifteen years. They've beaten the market you know thirteen or fourteen out of the last fifteen you know years and have have been able to take price up you know exceeding inflation um, you know really every year since two thousand four two thousand five. So they've they've been um, you know pretty tremendous lately. Yeah, so it's a little different with, with the rail and, and, and trucking, whereas uh, the, the rails have, uh, they're, they're still duopolies and, and monopolies, basically, mm-hmm. in different sectors where trucking is, it, it became very fragmented. And so you have certainly a, a, a real free market in, in, in trucking just because uh, the, there's so many players out there and rates are, are free floating. Uh, in the industry, so it's, it's it's interesting how 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 the two were deregulated and they went through the same process. Um, but I guess the infrastructure for 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 rail is much smaller than uh, than high, the highway system. Yeah, there are the barriers US, to entry. Right? You, barriers, yeah. you can start a trucking company, you can't start up a, yeah, a railroad. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Precisely. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to our uh, DHL supply chain pricing power index, uh, which I don't want to sound any alarms, but OTRI, our outbound tender rejection index, which again is a, a measurement of capacity and a measurement of carriers' willingness to accept loads, it is above 10, Mr. Kevin Hill. It is for first the first time. time since January of 2019 first when time. it was in a free fall. Yeah. From, so I, I think um, uh, after Christmas last year, it went from 14% to 7% in a matter of two weeks, mm-hmm. and it just trailed down. And has stayed uh, at the bottom doing little or nothing for uh, 10 or 11 months now. And now we are, the last four weeks, it's climbed from six, it was about five and a half percent to just over 10% as of today. And plus OTVI, which is our outbound tender volume index, which measures uh, the amount of loads on the road, 
is uh, is now over eight percent higher than it was today in 2018. Right. So it seems like trucking is is moving along at least in this peak holiday season. We'll see if if these trends last um, during the the softness of Q1. But it's looking up for carriers right now. Right. So uh, so OTRI and OTVI are are two main indices homegrown here and uh, our DHL supply chain pricing power index. It goes from zero to 100. We can refresh everyone. Zero being all power to the shippers, 100 being all power to the carrier, 50 being a dead center balanced market. We have climbed all the way back from the depths of 15 towards the shippers. We're all the way back to 40 now. We uh, are. We're at 40 and it's, it's, it's great. We, you know, the title of the article that just came out uh, on Thursday was uh, ring the carrier bells. It's uh, four straight weeks of pricing power gain. Um, and and honestly, in both of these indexes are, are seven day moving averages. So it's mm-hmm. it's the last seven days how many um, loads have been rejected, and we're above ten percent. So you know we have even more room to 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 rise up through the holiday season. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you guys What are you guys thinking for our outlook into Q one on both the rejection and the volume side? What do you think, Mike? Well, I think a lot of this is seasonal. So I'm not um, you know maybe terribly optimistic that it's going to keep you know continuing to to tighten. I mean, I, I you know I think some of the you know, there's you know maybe some displacement from 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 Celadon, but you know for the, really for the most part, um, you know what what I'm seeing on the the, the rail side, and I think those are pretty good indications of overall mm-hmm. um, economic act- activity. Is um, you know demand for for freight is 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 weak, and you know there's been you know some seasonal improvement, but like on the intermodal side, you saw seasonal improvement in. Um, you know, October, but then a lot of it just sort of went away pretty quickly. And and intermodal tends, I think, to 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 lead the the trucking you know peak you know season. So I I think it's going to be a little temporary um, temporary blip, unfortunately. But. Uh, negative news for Mike. <laughs> no, no, I, I I totally agree. I it, we'll have to see what happens in Q1. Q1 is going to be it's always a rough quarter. So it, let's see if these trends uh, continue. I think Q2, Q3 uh, of next year. Uh, much more optimistic about than, than the Q1. And um, I think we'll see a few more. We were talking about bankruptcies just uh, a few minutes ago. I think we'll see uh, an acceleration in trucking failures and, and uh, voluntary and involuntary uh, closing closing down of businesses through Q1, which should make the rate environment much better for those carriers still in operation uh, in the back half of, of twenty twenty. And so, you know, and uh, one of the reasons that OTVI is, is up, you know, over 8% over last year uh, is because volumes are really holding steady this year. Uh, as of last year, as soon as Thanksgiving was over, the, the volume index just tumbled. Uh, I wanted to pose the question, do you guys think it is uh, because Thanksgiving was a week later this year or some sort of, uh, of a pull through from the early Chinese New Year or a little bit of a combination of both of why our volumes have stayed steady? What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I think it's a little a little bit of a combination of both. I mean, I think the 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 late um, you know the late Thanksgiving you know being almost a, basically being the last day you can possibly have Thanksgiving this year you know really sort of you know creates a little bit of a of a crunch um, to to get things get things shipped. But I also think there was just some disruption between you know a combination of tariff Chinese New Year. Um, there's just been a lot of noise and and some of the the import you know data from from what I've seen. So like on the on the rail side, I mean they're they're still expecting you know tough comps in uh, in January through really through January because last year there was a big pull forward um, at, at the end of you know 2018, and by the time that stuff gets shipped inland, it's it's already you know at the end of January. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I think some of the softness in, in last year and after Christmas or le- leading up to Christmas and, and really after Christmas 
uh, it was a pull forward from from the, the the tariff warnings, and basically that 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 fear uh, subsided around the first of December. I think that's when it got delayed, but you still had a lot of inventory that was was already stocked up, and after after Christmas, the, those moves kind of diminished. So maybe we won't have that that problem this year. But I, I think exactly right with the one less week uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas and and also the Chinese New Year that that we've compressed this this peak holiday season and and we're seeing the effects in in, in load volume comparables and also that that climb in in Otri. But I'm still optimistic. I yeah. still want to be optimistic. We're, we're, we're carrier fans here. I, we we are. On, yes. On this yes. Team. I, I am I am optimistic that that this will uh, we'll see some vol we'll see much more volatility in the market in in 2020. All right. Well, let's move on to our next topic. Uh, we are talking intermodal. Uh, Mike had a an intermodal deep dive this this past weekend. It also got uh, put on the website. I think today. Uh, first, start and tell our listeners that that don't know much about freight. What is intermodal? And when did the rail start offering the service and then get into uh, your opinion about the growth story of intermodal? Sure. So intermodal is moving uh, freight, uh, you know, usually containers, but it, it's, it can also be trailers on, on two modes, which is almost always um, on the railroad for the long haul. And then, um, you know, via truck on the shorter haul, you know, portion of the move. So think of it almost like a, a barbell where you have, um, you know, a higher you know, cost per, per mile um, on each side um, you know, when it's on the highway and then a, a lower cost per mile on the long haul, which is on the, on, on the railroad. So the idea is to, you know, save uh, uh, shipping costs about 10 to 10 to 15 percent usually by moving it on the two modes in exchange for, uh, you know, service, you know, an, an extra day or two of transit, maybe a little bit less certainty of when the, the shipping is, is shipment is going to get there. But it's a, it's a cost saving uh, scheme. Okay. And, and oh, oh, oh no, yeah, please. and and I, I just read a read your article uh, again uh, a few minutes ago before we got in the booth, and so so Intermodal has traditionally or, or over the last few years grown at double GDP. Is that right? Yeah, it, it, exactly. So, well, really, over the the, the you know, since its inception, it's grown you know about double GDP. So, so like you said, I mean, I guess I didn't answer your question of, of when it got started. I mean, it really, sort of got started in earnest in 1989 with the the, the JB Hunt agreement with with Burlington Northern, and mm-hmm. and you know from from then until just you know a couple you know years ago, it's really grown you know double GDP about 4.6 percent, you know, versus GDP about 2.3. And you know the reason was 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 pretty clear. I mean, there was just it was a, a market that was it was nascent, and it, there was more. Uh, shipments that could be moved by by rail, and um, you know companies want to optimize their supply chain for lower costs and more environmentally e- efficient you know methods. And so you had uh, you know big uh, sh- you know shippers like Home Depot and Target and and others just just really sort of take advantage of of that of that method. Um, you know what's happened recently is that intermodal growth has sort of disappeared. I mean, this year has been a you know, horrible year for rail traffic in, in general, but intermodal in, in, in particular, um, you know, now it's you know, only 1%, 1% and change above where it was at the end of 2015. So it, my article discusses this question of, is intermodal as a growth story, is that, is that over? Um, and we're never going to see it again. And, um, you know, in which case we should take down the, the multiples for intermodal providers and railroads, too. Or is it just that you know, we just have a bunch of, you know, idiosyncratic, uh, you know, situations here that, that are going to reverse themselves and it's going to go back to being a, a growth area. So, so you argued both sides of the, the, the issue. What, what yeah. do you think? 
What's your real opinion? I I think it is diminished as a growth area at, at the least. I'm I'm not going to say. I mean, I I thought about writing it and saying it is over, and then but then you know wouldn't have been a balanced article, and I, I think it's a little too premature to. Um, to, to make that to make that claim with with any certainty because we don't know what the railroads are going to do. I mean the, the 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 railroads really have not placed volume growth as a high priority. They've placed margin growth as a high priority. That's what is keeping the 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 railroad management teams employed um, because PSR. The, the, you, know, you, know, you know PSR and and reducing their their cost structures and 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 that's what. Um, has has you know moved the the, the stocks? I mean, the, the, the you know, stocks outperformed the market again this year. You know, most of the multiples there are trading at at highs. So um, you know, the market's expecting the earnings to continue to to grow. But um, you know, most of the market you know per, stock market participants are focused you know more on the OR number than than they should be. Right. But that's that's that, that. But but you know, at some point, you think that they get to the point of diminishing returns there, and they're going to have to. Find a, a way to grow volume, and you know, intermodal should be uh, a lever that that they can can pull. I mean, some have made the argument that 2018, um, you know, you know, last year was was just this huge, you know, missed opportunity because the, the truck market was strong for much of that year, you know, very strong in the, in the beginning of part of that year. That should have been when the rails said, "Hey, you know, we're going to take that volume because the the truckers are are are, are struggling with that, and and you know, we'll we'll move it for twenty percent less or twenty five percent less." Mm-hmm. But um, you know, that really wasn't wasn't their focus. You know, what the rails have done, kind of the opposite. I mean, a lot of the rails have demarketed lanes, intermodal lanes that were less uh, less profitable. Do you think that was a smart move, not? Not um, going after market share with the, the the trucking, and and the reason why I say that is because uh, the that the intense cycle lasted. It was such a brief cycle. Yep. That it, it pro- by the time they really reacted to it, it would have been over. Do you think it was a smart move not to uh, not to aggressively take market share during you know the the first half of twenty eighteen? You know, it, it's it's hard to to say. Um, I, I think you could could sort of make the argument either way. I mean, I think that you know, for for if you chase the the, the volume and it is you know incremental to operating income and cash flow, mm-hmm. you should go after that. I think a lot of volume once it goes intermodal, it's sticky and doesn't come back because the shipper realizes this service is good enough and this is this is cheaper. I mean, I think it's hard for a lot of you know, logistics managers to make that initial step in intermodal because they're so used to trucking. And if, you know, if, if something is, is, is late, that's really an, an, an issue, you know, f- for them. But I think, you know, once they sort of get, you know, more accustomed to intermodal, it, t- it tends to be, to be sticky. I mean, I think that's, you know, I think the experience a lot of the intermodal providers have, have had, have had over the years, but, um, you know, I, th- I think it sort of gets back to, you know, intermodal not being, one of the more profitable segments for the, the the railroads, and it's and it's not because the you know tr- trucking is is always a, a competitor. So it's it's at best in the middle in terms of margin um, for the the railroads. If you if you were to you know rank their their segments by profitability, which we can't see, but you know we can sort of you know presume. Um, but you know, you know but maybe towards the towards the bottom in terms of profitability. So to, to build off of uh, something you said earlier, you said that uh, it's typically a 10 or 15 percent discount uh, for intermodal. And, and historically, that's been because of the service that you, you run that chance of being uh, a little bit late. Yep. Uh, Jim Foote, you, you, you um, quoted him, the CEO of, S, of, of CSX. Uh, he questions whether intermodal rates should even tr- be at any discount to trucking. Do you think 
that the rails have gotten up to a level of service uh, to equate uh, a price that should be equal to uh, to truckload. No, I don't think that makes any sense. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the 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 over the highway is a better is a better service than than than, than railroads. I mean, right at the moment, the railroad operating metrics are strong and service levels are high, but you know, they, they really should be because rail traffic is down so much this year. I mean, rail traffic is down about, you know, 5% and, you know, it's, it's down even more in, in, in some categories. And, you know, it wasn't long ago when, you know, the, the railroads were having issues with, you know, terminal congestion and, you know, CN, you know, less than two years ago, fired its CEO over congestion issues in, in you know, Western Canada that was really more on the grain side. But I, I don't think there's as, as much cushion there as, as the rails, you know, believe there, there to be. So if there was a, a surge in, in, in volume, I, I do think that you would have issues with, with railroad, um, with railroad service. And um, it just doesn't seem like, you know, from comments like that from, from Jim Foote, and some of that might just be, you know, posturing, but um, it, it doesn't seem like those are the type of Type of attitude that's going to attract more volume to the to the railroads. Right. So Andrew, let's do uh, let's go to long short. Yeah, and, I was thinking and wrap it up. Let's do it. We got let's one more it. section left. Uh, we have our normal long short. Our first long short is: Are you long or short unemployment rising in 2020? Kevin, start with you. I am currently, currently at three and a half percent. I know. I, I'm long that. I, I'm long that. Yeah, you, I, think, I think, you think it will rise. I think it, it will rise. Uh, it's, it's hard to go. I, th- I think we're probably at full employment right now. I think we're past full employment. I, I do too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know, right? I, yeah. So I, I think we're, and as uh, Seth and, and we were talking about in the last episode, I think we're closer to a recession than further away. Correct. It's been 12, what, 12 years, something? Almost, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not bearish on, on the economy, but, you know, I'm not. I'm not bullish either, so I I don't know what that means. I'm not bearish or bullish. That's, that's <laughs> kind of cop out a little bit, but but I I I I, I think we're closer to a recession than, than further away. So we might see one this next year. We might not. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I have a hard time, you know, making the bet that um, unemployment would go lower than it already is, since it's at such a low level. Yeah. So it's almost like the risk is skewed to, you know, unemployment going higher. Yeah, I'm with you guys. I think we're near that uh, the natural unemployment floor. Even though our our uh, our U6, the underemployed uh, level, I think it's still about seven, uh, maybe a little bit higher, a little lower. But uh, I, I think there's more room for those people to get more employment. But I don't think our overall the U3 uh, unemployment rate can go much lower than 3.5. Yeah. All right, our our second and last is a very debated topic here on the research team between the Passport Research and uh, the Freight Intel Group. We are going long, short Uber, long, short Uber. Kevin, you know, I off. this might be surprising to the, the guys over in Passport, but I'm going to go long. Oh, I'm going to go long. I, I saw a, a couple things wow. uh, lately that, that that tell me that they they might be able to actually uh, execute on profitability. And what were those things? I, you know what, I it, it was something where that they were they were discussing turning the corner. Yeah. To, 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 to kind of subsiding the growth, you know. Uh, so I, I, can't, I can't remember exactly what it is right right now. Uh, I think we were talking about it. It, it may have been the recent news. They, they're going to sell their Indian uh, that's right. Uber Eats to uh, Zomato. Uh, yes. that, that's going to happen soon. Uh, that was one of the most unprofitable um, uh, segments. So they, they're selling that. They, they seem to be at least a little bit turning I, a corner I, being I, focused I, on profit. I, I think they're exploring just, just – Becoming profitable, which they can do, I think, with a switch. Um, certainly in the, in the ride sharing, right? Uh, you know, as long as they 
that they kind of exit everything that there's no reason for them to be in. Um, but I, I think they, they can they, they can take a, a, a nice profit from ride sharing very quickly if they just do that pivot. So I'm going to disagree with you and say Good. I'm short, nice. short Uber. And the reason is I don't know how sustainable this business model is, not just because they're losing tons of money on Uber Eats, which they are. I think at some point they will run into a shortage of people who are, are drivers. There'll be plenty of people who need a ride home from the bar or from the airport. That's not going to be a problem. But the thing is, the the Uber is cheaper than cabs, and it's cheaper than cabs because the drivers are working for free, and they're working for free because they think, okay, my expensive operating this vehicle is you know gasoline, but it's not gasoline. It's all these other repairs mm-hmm. that go into it, and the depreciation that um, you know goes beyond the, the average age when you put so many miles on a car. I was in an Uber in um, in Dallas, and the lady that was driving said she lived in Paris, Texas, which is not close. And it's, it's not even just, remotely. Close. No, it's not. It's, it's nowhere near there. So it's it's like, I don't know how driving to Dallas to pick someone up at Love Field to take them to Uptown is a sustainable bit. I don't know how she's making oh, I, any money. It does just so I I just think the, the 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 drivers if they were to put all this in a Excel spreadsheet and and put pencil to paper they'd say well I'm I'm you know working for less than than minimum wage. Um, so I, at some point I think they figure that out and they will either have to pay. The drivers more or something has to give. So I just, I, I just, yeah, or cost more. I, I just, and then, and then it'll be as expensive as, 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 as cabs. Maybe the, the vehicles will still be nice. They won't smell as bad as cabs, but to, to me, something doesn't add up there. So I don't know that it's a sustainable business model as it is today. So you're, you're not only short Uber, you're short uh, Lyft or any other uh, ride sharing companies. Yeah. I mean, I, okay. I, I think, um, I think there's going to be a shortage of people driving the vehicles i mean there's i mean with they really the, don't make that as much as they 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 they, they think they do right, right. they really don't yeah no, yeah you make a good point though because uh, an uber or a lyft is, is substantially cheaper than a cab i think i've read the number it's about 30 mm-hmm. percent cheaper on average uh that is one of the reasons that i'm i'm, I'm tough to say i'm long uber because I, I like lyft more but we're talking uber because they're a bit more interested in freight and it, and it fits in with our topics uh i am long ride sharing we'll put it that way um because i think if they can it, once they get the autonomous technology down, let's say ten to fifteen years from now, you have a you have a very you have a, a printing a, a cash printing machine, as uh, as Seth Holm would call it. Uh, so I'm long ride sharing. I don't know if I'm exactly long Uber because I think they they burned so much money. And as as actually as Seth said uh, the other day, they they finally sold off one of their cash incinerators, which was that uh, that Uber Eats business in India. Uh, but either way, I think they still have quite a few cash incinerators. Uh, let's call oh, it the yeah, helicopter is, business yeah. or. Uh, you know, the scooters. A, quite, or the scooters, you know. Yeah, so, they, they, they need to get rid of a lot of stuff. They've got some fat to trim. They have a lot of fat to trim. But I think if they do it, then the, the ride sharing might not. But then again, Mike makes a really good point. It's a good know? argument. I mean, it, it they, are, they are really profitable uh, in, in select cities uh, in New York. Well, they were profitable in London before they, well, they kicked them out of London. But I, I think that the, the stock price will, will be very bullish as they're if they do actually sell off or close down the incinerators. Yeah, I think they have yeah. the, the stock has rebounded even on the news that they're going to sell the, the Uber yeah. Eats business in India this week. So yeah, I, I think that they have room to run. Uh, well, here we are, uh, the yep. end of the show, guys. We, we we did it. We did it without Seth. I didn't know we were going to be able to, but we pushed we, through. We did. Uh, happy holidays to everyone. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, 
Uh, and on Simplecast, you can listen to us just about anywhere. Podcasts are available. Uh, and tune in, I guess, the week after the holidays. Uh, we'll be back for another episode of Great Quarter Guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.